thanks for joining the SOARcast, where we talk about drones, manned aircraft, and satellites, and how they relate to geospatial products found on the SOAR platform. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the SOARcast. And we have an exciting guest today. Uh, Walters is joining us. I'm going to let Walters pronounce his surname because I'm sure I would get it wrong. But Walters is uh, a SOAR user, and he's also um, an oceanographer. And so he does some quite interesting things uh, in terms of visualizing uh, data through satellite imagery. Walters, it's great to have you on the SOARcast. How are you today? Hello, Darren. Uh, I'm pretty good. Uh, my last name is Jejis. Uh, it's uh, a bit tricky. Also, yeah. yeah, you you saved me the trouble of trying to uh, to uh, pronounce that. And of course, I like to call him Vault, so we're just going to call him Vault Z for for the time being. Well, Vault, I'm sure everyone wants to know with a name like well Z, uh, where do you come from, and how large how large is that country? Uh, I'm from Latvia, and it's a uh relatively small country in the northeast part of Europe. Very good, yes. And and in fact, for, for those uh, who are listening, don't feel bad because I had to look it up on the map as well. Um, speaking of maps, I mentioned you're an oceanographer, but how did you get into maps? Well, uh, I think I've been uh, into maps uh, when, since I can remember myself. Um, mostly through childhood, it was... Um, just uh, maps in, in various books and uh, sort of adventures and explorations. And then later on, uh, I studied geography and uh, it's a requisite to have understanding of maps if you're a geographer. And uh, yeah, now I work as an oceanographer. It's also very closely related to reading, and also creating maps. But the satellite images that I that I do on my, let's call it uh, free time. Uh, well, it's hard to pinpoint one exact moment, but probably also through my work, because that's when I realized that there is a lot of uh, open data, and especially Earth observation data available. And then when you start playing with the various platforms and, and satellite sensors, at one point, uh, it becomes more than just information, I believe. And um, I believe that's why we're also speaking. Yeah, yeah, very good. Well, and, and incidentally, it's good that um, Walters mentioned that because, in fact, we we really just connected over um, Walters. He's part of a community of people on twi Twitter who are tweeting the uh, map creations they make, make just as a means to share. So if you're interested, we'll put the link to Walters' uh, profile on Twitter. And you can follow him and see some of the maps, in fact, that we're talking about today. You're an oceanographer. Can you give me an example of how an oceanographer would use a map? Well, the, the, the first thing that pops into mind is uh, ocean floor mapping and bathymetry. It's what we call it. And uh, those maps are really necessary just to understand what's going on beneath the surface, surface of the sea. And usually satellites can help with this. And uh, you, but but it's an information that you must have in order to model, like wave uh, propagation and 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 just to understand what's what's actually beneath the waves, which is actually the mo the largest part of the ocean. It's a, it's what's under the surface. So 
but as just one example, well, that, yeah. Yeah, no, that that that's quite interesting because uh, as somebody who looks at satellite imagery uh, day in and day out, can you explain how does that work? The satellite sitting, let's say, 500 kilometers above the Earth, how can a satellite derive bathymetry, the depth of the water, using the instrumentation on the satellite? Well, satellites uh, usually have some limitations in, in regard to what can they see beneath the surface. But uh, it's mostly derived information from uh, one part of the spectrum. It's called uh, away from the visible spectrum. And uh, through various algorithms, you can sort of derive what's underneath just by judging uh, how, how the light penetrates the, the, the surface of the sea. So it can be used for coastal bathymetry, but for deeper parts of the ocean, you have to get uh, sonar sensors that are aboard ships and also various uh, underwater mapping techniques as well. Oh, very, very good. Let's just pretend I'm somebody who's not an oceanographer, not a remote sensing specialist, but I like making maps or I like to look at maps. Uh, say I want to start my journey making maps. Well, where would you start? I think it starts with Google Earth. <laughs> it's also a freely available platform, and I think that they got great technology behind them and a lot of resources. And uh, as you mentioned, the, actually the community, which is Earth Observation, is very, let's call it engaging. And uh, you can find a lot of resources on how to do the simple stuff as well as how to do very clever and uh, difficult technical stuff as well so but uh, yeah i think the starting point is google earth and then uh, later on you can find amazing resources just starting from there uh, i would say that sentinel hub is also currently a very big big thing at least for me and i think the community as well but since uh, i think bo both of them the limitations for them is that they're actually businesses and so uh, in that, that regard, of course, they're building uh, the user platform, but uh, at one point, and we don't know when, it's probably going to become uh, uh, less accessible, I think. But uh, then again, I think the whole Earth observation is sort of moving towards open data. And uh, if one platform, platform becomes um, only monetary, um, probably another one will pop out which uh, gains free access to, to, to people as well. I think you actually bought, brought up a great point. Um, I can sort of remember when I discovered Google Earth and, and began playing with it and looking at it. And it was it really just sparked my curiosity as to the, the capabilities or the data that actually existed. This is a little bit of a, a obscure question, but I'm obviously friends and family would know what you do or, or see what you do. What is the, I guess, silliest or most obscure question you've ever been asked about satellites? That, that's a good one. Um, probably something regarding uh, some spying or stuff like that. Because I think that people who are, uh, who understand satellites uh, on a very, very basic scale, they usually think that that it's mostly military stuff and uh, or regard or related to military, uh, let's say uh, intelligence uh, gathering. 
but I, I, I'm sorry, but I can't actually pinpoint one silly question, but um, yeah, probably something related to spying on people and how would that be used? I think I think that that response is would be similar to my own. We all tune into various intriguing programs on television or, or movies. And a lot often what we see portrayed, you know, that satellites can do. Well, it, we don't know for sure that they can because you and I were not in the military, but uh, obviously the commercial satellites aren't sitting up there sort of as a real time, you know, camera um, watching the whole earth or, or, you know, we don't have the capability to zoom in on on any one person at any time. Moving on, what are some of the satellites? So you, you mentioned you briefly mentioned some of the satellite sources that you're using um, can you tell us, you know, what satellites you work with and then even the applications that you use to, um, I guess, interpret or enhance the imagery that, that you get? Oh, yeah. Well, coming from Europe uh, and working uh, in various uh, mostly European uh, uh, communities, of course, Sentinels is, is the go-to thing for me. And actually, that's how my active use of satellites also be began through various programs that are brought into life by the European Commission. I think they're actually leading the way right now. I think NASA was 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 the, let's say, torch bearer for 20 plus years. And now I think the Europeans have stepped up. And, and I think the Sentinel constellation uh, from Sentinel 1 to 2 and 3, and, and now the next ones as well, that are being brought into orbits, uh, I think they bring huge amounts of information and also um, allow for a very interesting development because most of the data is open and when the data is open the people really really start to figure out how to connect to points and bring out information that you would otherwise never even thought of and regarding this topic i can actually think <clears throat> uh, mention one other thing that when those uh, the first like earth observing satellites as we know them they were sort of available for 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 at least scientist community and sort of open were the ones that were uh, in orbit to, to to watch over various patterns of weather like uh, cyclones and uh, stuff like that and when they did gather that information they already started to to gather it in quite a wide spectrum usually wider than than just visible but at that point, nobody really knew why they were doing it. I mean, there wasn't a real commercial or or like product-wise idea of why we're gathering all the other frequencies as well. But once it comes into life and people start putting those mechanisms together, we can now really benefit from, from those even older systems that were up there because they give us this archive, which we can now use to sort of understand what what was happening in, in longer periods uh, back in our history because sentinels are in orbit for like a few years uh, about five uh, depending on the satellite but but those early systems they were actually from, from 50s and 60s and i mean the resolution of course it's it's, it's a different story but but uh, the idea that you can figure out how to use it later on is still i think applicable and uh, even even for today, I think that in ten years' time, when when hopefully these commercial systems become more available, I think a lot of good can come out of it as well. 
I think something that's worth pointing out is that you've made mention of visible light and the light spectrum. For example, if I take a picture with my phone camera, it's capturing light and, and effectively what we call three bands, red, green, and blue, and that makes the image that uh, natural, what we call natural color composite or some, something like that, RGB, what you're used to seeing with your eyes. But others know that there's things like infrared light that, that can be used to enhance imagery. And I think the thing that I wanted to point out was that, in fact, Sentinel-2 has, in fact, 12 bands that partition the, the light that's captured and can be used in any number of ways to highlight different aspects of, of the image that it's taking. So, so in fact, we'll, we'll get to that more when we get sort of into the details of, I guess, scripting and, and highlighting things that normally aren't visible to the human eye, but should be seen or, or can be used for things like crop monitoring and forest fire analysis, those types of things. We mentioned Sentinel. Are you excited about Sentinel-6? Well, definitely, yes. <laughs> It just came uh, sort of alive. And, uh, yeah, I think it's a very big thing. And also, I think it's also part of the heritage that, that it's also bringing with it. It's not just a new satellite. The idea of uh, altimetry has been uh, alive for, I could say, many decades now. And have another system that produces continuous data that we can add to the existing series and be, be sure that it's going to be up there and running for at least the, the amount that it's supposed to. Usually they actually serve more than that. I mean, it's very big, uh, especially for oceanography and just this whole understanding of the climate and how it's changing if you got data that's intercomparable and it spans over 50 years, then it's, it's, it's pretty big. And yeah. Also, it's named uh, Michael Freilich, as you know. And he's uh, actually a Landsat, uh, one of the fathers for the whole Landsat family of satellites. And it's a tribute not only to European Space Agency, but also definitely to NASA as well. And the USGS, the Geological Survey of the United States. And it's just, it's just breaking all the barriers, I think, within like any geographic or national scales, because it's, it's a community of, of yeah, understanding, let's, let's put it that way. Well, one reason I'm excited about it is because, like yourself, I generate content on, on Twitter and, and post different styles of maps. So having access to one additional type of satellite and, and the imagery that you can generate from that is, is quite exciting. So. The other exciting thing, I guess, is that on SOAR, you have the capability of placing those images on a map so that you can share them and others can visualize them in context and also in reference to other imagery that might be nearby or imagery that comes from an earlier time. So we're going to take a short break while we segue into a word from our sponsor, which is, of course, SOAR. Often do you think the images on Google Earth are updated? What if there was a website that could give you access to near real-time satellite imagery for almost any location on Earth, updated daily? Meet SOAR, the future of all maps and imagery. Start exploring today, soar.earth. 
So thanks everyone for joining us again on the SORCast. We are with Vault Z, who is an oceanographer who has a passion for satellite imagery. And one of the things that we've engaged Vault on is, is using SkyMap 50 satellite imagery from SOAR. And one of the things that differentiates, we've been talking a lot about freely accessible satellite imagery, such as uh, Sentinel-2 and 3 and, and 5 and even now 6. But of course, the resolution on those is perhaps as good as 10 meters and or, or even lower resolution. We're going to talk a little bit more about the high-resolution satellite imagery. So that sub-meter resolution satellite imagery. Can you tell us a little bit what are the advantages of high-resolution imagery over low-resolution satellite imagery? Well, uh, I think the most obvious uh, one is just that you can pick out smaller details from those images, and, uh, and it, it, it probably depends on, on why you're using the satellite. But in those cases, when you have access to this higher spatial resolution, it's, the reasoning usually is that you need more detail. And, and uh, in that sense, yes, SkyMap 50 definitely brings out way more details uh, than a Sentinel satellite could could do. And uh, I mean, uh, it, 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 it can vary from anything, from just uh, surveying uh, infrastructure and how it changes, because you could see individual cars and, and maybe even uh, small lampposts uh, well, maybe not small, but medium-sized lampposts and, and stuff like that, which you could never do from a 10-meter resolution satellite. And so that's definitely a gain. And I think in terms of agriculture also, you can pinpoint, uh, well, maybe not single crops, but uh, at least uh, uh, get more detailed information on on which parts of the of the field are more or less productive and start connecting those dots. Yeah, I think that's a good explanation. And and if somebody was to ask me this the same question with reference to agriculture, I would probably respond it, it's effectively you want it, you want the resolution that's on the scale of your production. And that, that sort of sounds like a lot, but if your equipment, let's say the, the harvester or the equipment that's, you know, planting, planting at your fields uh, can only operate or turn within a certain radius and it can only address so small of an area, well, going at much higher resolution than that that machine is capable of achieving is, is sort of in a way overkill. So I think that's something to keep in mind. I, I think we even see that in, in drone imagery. You know, you can get down on the order of two centimeters per pixel with your, your drone imagery or even better, which is all fine and great. But in the grand scheme of things, we're not picking grapes you know, <laughs> one by one. It's it's equipment that's doing the job. So you need to, to sort of match the resolution of your imagery and your interpretation so that it can work with the uh, equipment that you're using. Something else that we've talked about is is scripting or taking out various bands of the imagery and highlighting certain things that are going to tell you about things like crop health or or water content. What are, what are you using to look at the individual bands and generate new imagery that gives you new information? Well, strictly from processing part, uh, I mean the graphical uh, user platforms mostly it's it's also open source, so it's QGIS. And, uh, and the Sentinel application is called Snap. And uh, the, 
the Sentinel application is actually very, very, very good because it's tailored to work with satellite data. And when the first versions of it came came alive, it was mostly built only for for those Sentinel satellites. But the current versions also work very well with different platforms. I think it's a very big strong point for 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 that application because it allows you to basically play around with any satellite information, be it the SkyMap or Sentinel or Landsat or Planet. Uh, it can do it all. And QGIS, on the other hand, is very strong because it's also a community-developed program. And, and once something becomes very useful in some specific program like SNAP, then eventually there are enthusiasts who will make it accessible and usable also on QGIS. And at this point, actually, for like Sentinel processing, you could also use QGIS for all, almost all the same things, except for maybe radar stuff, which is very, very complicated at this point. But, but for the optical part, I mean, QGIS is also very usable uh, as a product. And of course, I've been working with commercial stuff as well, like ArcGIS and and some specific programs made for specific satellites. But in general, yeah, I tend to use the open source stuff and uh, I think it works good. And, and I also think that it's the way to go in any case, the open source stuff, yep. So speaking of uh, manipulating imagery or, or processing imagery to highlight the, well, the appearance, but also highlight various, I guess, aspects or features within the imagery that, that need further attention. I want to refer to imagery that's on the, the SOAR platform, imagery that's been processed by Vault. And so for those of you that are perhaps at home, you can jump on the system and we'll, we'll put links in the description as to where you can find his imagery. This is an image of, of SkyMap50 that is in, I'm going to take a stab at how to pronounce it, <clears throat> of Av, a, a region called Av in France, A-U-V-E. Did I pronounce that right? Uh, well, I'm not French, but I believe you did. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Okay. And th so this is an agricultural area. You can clearly see in the image, there's quite a few different crop types. I mean, just even visually, you can see that, that there's different crops. They're, they have, they're visually appear appealing. They're not just rectangles. They're various shapes. Can you tell us why this area of interest, uh, why you chose this area? Well, uh, mainly I was looking for some familiar crop types for me. And uh, for me, familiar means something that grows uh, where I live and back in Latvia. So it's wheat and uh, other grains and maybe some more common vegetables as well, like uh, potatoes or beetroots or stuff like that. And uh, this region specifically, I mean, I, I kind of looked at it not only from this agricultural part, but uh, also I kind of liked uh, the layout and geometries of the fields themselves. And so it just came together. And I was, <clears throat> uh, at that moment, I was actually browsing through images prior to that uh, with Sentinel. And uh, yeah, I got sort of familiar with the region, at least from the eyes of the satellite. And, and then when I was browsing the SkyMap archives, uh, that was a pretty good acquisition regarding the angle of of sun and uh, and the the radar the, the satellite itself. 
so it just came together and uh that's why i picked it yeah. <laughs> it's probably a chain okay. of stuff uh, well yeah well fair enough and just <laughs> it was out of curiosity for myself but clearly i can see the different crop types and why that would be interesting and and frankly you'd be able to tell quite a quite a few things rather than just monoculture of course monoculture being one crop type you you might be able to find out things about just that but hey let's let's tell more about a single area i'm looking at uh, one of the composites you made and it was titled crop and soil properties and effectively what it what it does is it differentiates the differentiates the the crop types and soil types almost in an artistic way that you know some of the areas appear yellow and some of them appear purple in the image description, you refer to soil typing. How would I find out more about the soil type? So for example, I can see there's areas of bare soil and one soil might look a little bit differently. How do you verify that? What's the, what's the process? What's the ground truthing effectively? Well, actually a very important topic that you mentioned, ground truth. Yeah. Um, so in any case, you have to know some you, you have to get some knowledge of what, what is actually it is that you're looking at, whether it's crops or, or, or bare ground, let's put it that way. And so just by looking from satellite, um, you would need a lot of images to really understand what's going on. So you should probably look at some soil maps or some crop maps as well. Then you can sort of find shortcuts to to to, to understand what you're actually looking at but the image that you're mentioning uh well first of all yes it's uh, sort of more artistic than it is uh, analytical and in that sense it's more a visual uh, let's say experience than uh, an anal analytical because I, I actually with that image i wasn't um, really aiming at uh, i don't know crop uh, classification or soil classification but in any case, uh, when you do combine those indices that I've done on that image, it sort of uh, lets you like, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, uh, it lets you understand some, some things in more um, in a context, let's put it that way. And so the idea behind those uh, soil uh, indices that I've used there is that basically they tell you whether the, the the soil there is is being washed out of nutrients, maybe it's uh, too wet or too dry. And so it's more or less very basic like notions of whether it's more to more, uh, let's put it, uh, whether you should pay more attention to specific parts on the field or does it seem uh, more or less uh, regular across the field? And I believe that uh, this high resolution that SkyMap produces images, it's it's very beneficial that it really allows you to see like puddles on the field and uh, maybe lower lying uh, places that have been moist for a prolonged period. And from the other hand, if you are a farmer, of course, you probably know your field uh, well enough to, to, to know that there are problematic areas. But if you're for example, mapping for government or maybe for some commercial um, purposes, then uh, even this notion already tells you a lot about the region. Maybe they have some problems with irrigation or maybe the soils there need uh, more nutrients or, or, or don't need any nutrients. And uh, I mean, it's it all depends on 
why you're looking at the information and uh, and then you can start really analyzing this this data not only visually but also in really detailed analysis like um, looking at deviations from norms and stuff like that but in in those uh, in those in that sense you would probably need uh, at some sort of time series from images to really understand how how the situation is developing and for that specific uh, image that, that that we're talking about, I actually did look up some more information and it was a really rainy period prior to acquisition and it was actually one or two day period when there were no clouds in that part of France and you can pretty much see that from the images as well. There are a lot of puddles not only on the fields but also on the roads as well and, and um, that's what I'm getting at is that you a single image is very nice, but you you have to get this uh, broader understanding of of what's actually been going on prior to that, and 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 then what what is the reason that you're actually looking this looking up the satellite image, whether it's crop properties or or infrastructure, it can be anything. Yeah. Yeah, that that actually brings me to the the second composite or rendering of the image which is the Normalized Difference Water Index, or in fact, NDWI. Can you tell us how that, that image is, is generated and what it's telling us? Well, uh, uh, for the, the processing part, I actually did that on, on also on Sentinel application. And um, basically, it already has some preset uh, algorithms on how you would process certain parts of the spectrum. And the indice part for from satellites Usually, it's actually pretty simple, but also I think pretty clever is that in the sense that you're using differences from um, two channels usually. And uh, what it tells you in this case, it's, uh, it's basically moisture distribution, either in plants or on, on the bare ground. It's, uh, it depends on what the signal is reflecting off of. But uh, in this case, it's both. And uh, you can sort of judge. Uh, the, the field, uh, let's say, tech, not textures, but um, the bare field uh, information on, on where the drainage is working better or, or not as good, or maybe where rains have poured more intensely than other places. And from the crop part, uh, it tells you about basically moisture content in, in those plants that you're looking at. And from an agricultural point of view, that's a pretty valuable information to know whether your plants are actually healthy or not. And from that perspective, there are many indices that, that, that allow you to, to look at various, um, let's say, parameters of crop health. And it would depend on, on, the, on the crop type and also on the, on the stage of development is which indice you would actually be most useful Mm. I think some of the <clears throat> some of the takeaways I could I could take away from from that would be, for example, if I was government agency or or perhaps even um, an insurance underwriter interested in the crop yield of particular areas, I can use this information to find out perhaps uh, who's doing a better job over a certain area in terms of let's say growing wheat and uh, whose land is is perhaps better drained uh, in that case, because all of these things play together in terms of how 
how eventually your your yield will turn out. So I think that's that it's very good. You know, there's a number of indices, and you can you can go on to things like Sentinel Hub and and pretty much just play with them to find out to look at the different uh, renderings of those. And it's quite amazing all the information you can pull out from near infrared and the far infrared and how that relates to overall crop health. So for those listening in, now's the time to take a deep breath because we're going into what we call the not so serious part of the SOARcast, which is uh, actually where we not so much put the guest on the spot, but we, we have a little bit of fun, too much, uh, too much talk about indexes and uh, bandwidths and likewise. But I imagine some of us might have been asleep by this time. So let's segue into something a little bit more lighthearted. This is fun facts about Latvia. So we're going to challenge Vault a little bit about these facts, but being born and raised there, I'm pretty sure he's going to know most of the answers to these fun facts. I don't know if I should ask the year. Okay, might I'll ask the question in a different um, in a different format. In the this is and this is a uh, world-renowned tradition. This is a worldwide tradition celebrated in um, many of the countries around the world. What tradition started in Latvia in 1510 by a group of men in a club called the Brotherhood of Blackheads in 1510? What tradition did they start? Yes. Celebrated around the world. Mm. It's a good one. Uh, I know the Blackheads, they were sort of traders, but uh, um, I think you got me, Darren. <laughs> Okay, so it was in the it was in the city of Riga, and um, let's see. I'll give you some 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 clues. The item was decorated with bouquets of ribbons, dried flowers, straw doll, straw dolls, uh, weave and fruits. So this is something that's decorated every year in December, towards the end of the month. Uh, I don't know. Would it be? <clears throat> no, it can't be. <laughs> is it Christmas decorations or? It is. It is very spot on. So that's the Christmas tree. Oh, yeah. The first Christmas tree was decorated in Latvia in 1510. I actually, I've heard this one about a year ago, but I sort of deemed it just the marketing agencies. or <laughs> I never did look it up properly. So <laughs> good to know. Good to know. Well, fair enough. Hey, these, these facts that I'm reading, I'm blown away. So um, I, I, my goal is that everyone knows about <laughs> Latvia at the end of this, and they know they know more about it. So the large, okay, I'm going to give you some statistics about something that is in Latvia, and I'm going to try and get you to, to guess what it is. So <laughs> it is uh, a natural feature. It's 250 meters wide. It is... Located in a place called Kuldaiga, one of the most interesting things about it is that it is the uh, widest one of these, one of the widest of this type of natural feature in all of Europe, and one of the, I guess, activities of people around this is to stand at the edge of it and watch fish jump over it. Oh, yeah. What is this yeah, natural this feature? Uh, it's a waterfall. If you, yeah. It's a waterfall, not a high Excellent. one. So it's yeah. the Vento water. Yes, it's not a high one. You're right, but it's wide. So Latvia has the Europe's widest waterfall at 250 meters, 250 meters wide. Okay, so Latvian is one of Europe's oldest languages. 
There is a strong similarity between Latvian and this language, which is also the sacred language of Hinduism and Buddhism. What language is Latvian strongly similar to? Well, I've actually have heard that the that the roots are probably somewhere in, in India, but I can't pinpoint out the single language. I, I know that they have many of languages over there. Okay. Uh, Latvian has is is strongly similar to oh. Sanskrit, the sacred language of Hinduism okay. and Buddhism. In terms of internet speed ranking, worldwide internet speed ranking, Latvia ranks in the top 10 of the world's fastest internets. Is Latvia does Latvia have the fastest internet in the world? The third fastest or the fifth fastest internet in the world? Yeah, first of all, I know that we have really good connection over there, but I think it's not the best in the world. Uh, kind of thing that our northern neighbors are ahead of us and probably some other countries as well. So I'd say fifth. Exactly, okay. fifth. <laughs> Apparently it ranks between Hong Kong and the Netherlands. Still pretty good, yeah. <laughs> okay. This is also famous throughout the world, was invented by a Latvian Jewish tailor named Jacobs Jufis. This type of clothing is worn around the world and, in fact, was invented in Latvia. What type of clothing am I discussing? Jeans, right? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Jacob was backed by Levi Strauss. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Latvia, yeah. for jeans. Okay. <clears throat> what is the name of perhaps the world's first spy camera produced in Latvia? Um, I know it, uh, it's produced by the Minox or Min. Yeah. Yes. Spot on. Very, very good. So I'm going to read the description. In 1937, uh, in the state electrical electrotechnical plant, the uh, production of the first, the world's first mini camera, the VEF Minox, was started. Uh, not only the first camera to use such a small size, but it also provided many new opportunities in photography because it was the first camera in the world which made it possible to make clear and sharp photos in the distance, starting at 20 centimeters. Quite fascinating. Okay. Latvia holds the largest blank and blank festival in the world. I'll read you some more information about that. With over 40,000 participants, it's recognized by UNESCO as a world-class cultural phenomenon. While... Oh, yeah. It's... Okay. And the other, the other hint I already is... Um, <laughs> yeah. You do. Song yes. and okay. Festival. <laughs> awesome. Spot on. <laughs> Latvia also has one of the largest collections of traditional folk songs in the world, numbering 300,000 folk songs. Are you able to sing one for us? I'd rather not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, most of them are pretty short and almost lullaby-like, but uh, uh, I wouldn't bet on my voice to, to, to bring... Uh, I think I'll bring down a lot of people. <laughs> but... <laughs> Fair, fair enough, Vault. Like Vault, like before we started the uh, 
the, the, the sorecast today and chatting with Vault, I said, oh, yeah, we've got some trivia questions. And he said, well, thanks for putting me on the spot. So just to put you on the spot. Okay. This, this is our last trivia point about uh, Latvia. Okay. This, this is a, um, a well-known event in Latvia. It was an emotional protest against illegal Soviet occupation. Uh, okay, and I'll read a little bit more for the audience. So on October 23rd, 1989, two million people from Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania joined hands in protest against illegal Soviet occupation. What is the name of the event? Yes, spot on. Roughly two million people formed a massive human chain that spanned 600 kilometers through the capitals of all three nations. It linked and united people from the Baltic states in their drive for freedom encouraging the collapse of the whole Soviet Union. So spot on. Something else I didn't know. Vault, it's yeah, been fun doing trivia about Latvia, and I'm stoked. I know more, more about Latvia as well, our audience. And so thanks, everybody, for joining us on the, the SORCast. Thank you, Vaulters. If you want to find more about uh, SOAR or if you want to see the imagery that Vault has put on SOAR, uh, links will be included in the description. And so once again, thanks, Vault, and thanks for joining the SORCast. Thanks, Darren. And that's all we have time for today. Tune in to our next SOARcast for more discussion on geospatial products found on SOAR. So what is SOAR Plus? Well, imagine if Google Earth and Dropbox had a baby. SOAR Plus is the premier solution that allows users to store, view and share maps and imagery on one simple mapping platform. Think of SOAR Plus as your own digital atlas. Find out more by visiting us at soar.earth.